what would this uh, world look like if our first ancestors had never eaten that forbidden fruit? And what would our lives be like if there had never been rebellion against the good word of God and sin had never raised its ugly head and the corruption of human nature and human society itself had never begun? What would that world look like? What would human society look like? Well, I would guess, first of all, that our lives would be morally pure, as everyone would hate what is evil and cling to what is good. And surely all our relationships would be filled with the kind of affection that is now found only in a close-knit family. We wouldn't try to outdo one another, living in competition for pride of place. No, we would be quick to bestow honor on others rather than ourselves. There would no doubt be a passion for serving the Lord, and, and because we would know His goodness, we would live in hopeful expectation and patient prayer. No one would be stingy and Scrooge-like, looking out only for themselves. No, we we would all share what we have generously, knowing from whom we have received it. Surely there'd be no outsiders, no strangers. A warm welcome would be extended to all. We would be sensitive to the feelings of others, sharing each other's joys and sorrows. And we would maintain a humble mindset that considered others more important than ourselves. Just imagine what kind of world that would be. Such harmony, such beauty, such love. Again, imagine what a community like that would be like. Free to, we'd be free to to put down our guard and, and quit assuming some false front of piety, a place where we would not be afraid of people condemning us. We would be treated with grace and forgiveness instead, a community where we could give of ourselves to one another in very practical ways, building up each other, not tearing each other down. Just imagine a community of real love in that circle of friends, in marriage, in a family, in a church. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful thing. I would say it's it's nothing less than a picture of heaven itself, which is a world of love. Well, I hope you see that's the world that Paul has been describing for us in that passage that we have been camped on for these last three months. You see, the apostle is calling us to exhibit the new kind of life that Jesus came to bring. It's life as it was meant to be lived, life in the kingdom of God. It's a life not conformed to the pattern of this world, but one that has been transformed by the renewing of our minds, a life lived in response to the mercies of the gospel, one that expresses the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. It's a new community in which that will of God is done on earth as it is in heaven. We call it a life of sincere love because that's the way Paul first describes it in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, love must be sincere. That's kind of the heading of this whole passage. And this is the way God in His wisdom has designed us to live so that we might flourish as human beings. This is the kind of life that Christ came to bring into this world for it's a way of life that shines with His light and with His love. And in this new community called the church, The gospel is now at work to give us a glimpse of this new world, a world redeemed by the blood of Christ, a world sanctified by the power of the Spirit. And so our experience in the life of the church should give us a taste of what life in heaven is like. And so I say, may this description of love inspire us. 
May it move us to new heights of love here and now and to a new hope as we look forward to what is yet to be. Isn't this what we want our life together to look like? But at the same time, we must be realistic for this kingdom of God has not yet arrived in its fullness on earth. We all know that to be true. We still live in a fallen world, a spoiled world, a sinful world. And so long as we live, we must be aware of this reality. And that's why Paul has to say in verse 18 of our passage, if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We're to live at peace with everyone. We're to be peacemakers. That's how we're meant to live. We're meant to live. But Paul has to qualify that statement in two ways, doesn't he? First, he says, if it is possible, which assumes that sometimes this condition of peace will elude us. He's not talking here about peace at all costs. No, he realizes that sometimes a real peace just won't be possible. And then Paul says, as far as it depends on you. Real peace has two parties, and you can only do what you can do to live in peace with others. We're to be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody, he says. We are to seek to live at peace with everyone. But Paul knows from the teaching of Jesus and by his own experience that even if we are as loving and selfless as Jesus himself, we will encounter opposition. Didn't Jesus end up dying on a cross? Didn't Paul have to endure beatings and imprisonment and, and, and was almost stoned to death just for preaching the gospel? So much for living at peace with everyone. So in the final five verses of our passage, Paul turns to that hard reality of living in this fallen world. And he describes how this sincere love that he's been talking about responds to those who oppose us. Now, actually, this theme was introduced in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's picked up again in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. And then in verse 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends. In the closing uh, verses of this passage, Paul speaks both negatively and positively. Negatively, he calls us to repudiate the way of retribution in our dealings with those who do us wrong. And then positively, he calls us to love even our enemies. And so our focus this morning will be on that negative side, the side of non-retaliation, and next week we'll focus on the positive dimension of love. Do you ever watch children fighting? I used to do that at my house all the time. Uh, not really, I mean. But the fights I have seen tend to go something like this. One kid makes a comment about the other with a slightly snarky, sarcastic tone of voice. Perhaps after spilling a glass of milk, you hear, oh, that was real smart. Then the other, seizing the opportunity, puts in his own dig, this time perhaps referring to some past incident of public knowledge. Yeah, like when you broke mom's mirror, the interchange increases in intensity as mere words are joined with physical contact. A little shove accompanies the comeback. Hey, that wasn't my fault. And often with a verbal grenade thrown in. You're so stupid. Who are you calling stupid? And the first blow is launched. This calls for a response in kind, and before mom and dad can break things up, somebody ends up with a bloody lip. It's the law of escalating retaliation. 
It happens between kids on the playground ending in a scuffle, and it happens between nations on a border ending in a war. It's what disrupts the harmony of an office. It's what shatters the tranquility of a marriage. And you know all about it. You do it. We all do it. Somebody offends us. Anger is stirred up within us over it. It's just in, the injustice of it. Just, it riles us up. And now, we may respond with a sharp word to counter the wound, or maybe we don't use words at all. The, the cold shoulder treatment will do with its passive hostility. And that, of course, is picked up by the antagonist, and they will conjure up their own counter blow, and then the stakes are raised. It's the law of escalating retaliation. Now, this law is actually a distortion of one of the foundational principles of justice. That is the principle of retribution. You see, our idea of justice is based on the notion that a person who does something wrong ought to be punished. Wrongdoing creates a debt that needs to be paid. The offender ought to pay for what he has done. He ought to get what he deserves. Now, that principle of retribution is embodied in the Old Testament law when it says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that may sound barbaric, but in fact, it's not that at all. First, because it was never intended to be implemented literally by inflicting punishment in the form of physical mutilation. It simply expressed an essential rule of justice, the notion of proportionality. It was not a literal prescription of the way it was to be executed. And the value of this principle is seen second in the fact that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth was never intended to, to, to uh, be, <laughs> be implemented physically. It was intended actually to prevent the escalation of retaliation. In other words, it was intended to put limits on the retribution that could be inflicted on any given crime. For the punishment must fit the crime, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and no more. You see, the, the, the scales of justice are to balance the crime and the punishment so that the criminal doesn't get more than what he deserves. And this is especially important when families and clans and tribes were involved. For there the potential for escalating retaliation is tremendous. A member of your clan steals one of my chickens. I steal one of his cows. He, in turn, burns down my barn, so I kidnap his daughter. He then kills my son, so I destroy his village. And this sort of thing is carried on for generations. I mean, isn't this what we have seen in Northern Ireland, in the Middle East, and currently in Sudan? And the spirit of retaliation has created a hatred in those places that defies description. I uh, once heard Chuck Colson tell the story of the man who was visiting Belfast in Northern Ireland one night when he was suddenly accosted by a masked man with a knife. Protestant or Catholic, he says. Protestant or Catholic. The man knew that his life hung in the balance depending on how he answered that question. He had no idea whose side the assailant was on. So in a moment of brilliance, he responds, Neither. I'm a Jew. Well, what do you know, said the masked man. I've got to be the luckiest Palestinian terrorist in all of Belfast. Well, you see, this provision of the Old Testament law was to prevent that kind of hatred from brewing. It was to put a damper on this destructive law of escalating retaliation. But Jesus, you see, introduces a whole new way of thinking about this issue 
which Paul is simply echoing in our passage. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that the kind of life that God desires from his people goes beyond that mere limitation of retaliation. We read it earlier. You have heard that it was said, Jesus says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your cloak, your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Yes, do not resist an evil person, Jesus says, which Paul interprets here as do not repay anyone evil for evil and do not take revenge. Now, some have taken Jesus' words at face value and come to the conclusion that total pacifism is the only option for the followers of Jesus. Christians can not only not be soldiers, they can't be policemen or even judges either. But I think that fails to appreciate the teaching of the New Testament elsewhere and what Jesus is actually doing in this sermon. Jesus, at his own trial, recognizes the God-given authority of the Roman government. And Paul, in the very next chapter, Romans 13, speaks of the governing authorities as God's instrument in protecting the moral order in the world, rightfully bearing the sword, he says. They are God's servants, he says, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. There is a rightful place for retribution when rightly administered by the rightful authorities. Judges, policemen, even soldiers have a valid role to play in God's ordering of the world. And when you look at the examples Jesus gives here, you see that what he has in mind is not my response to evil as someone in an official position of authority, but my response to evil when someone confronts me personally. And these examples, and they're meant to be illustrative, not prescriptive. Jesus is challenging our moral assumptions here, not promulgating laws. These examples deal with an individual's personal response to other individuals, And I think it's a mistake to apply these principles directly to social ethics and still less to law. And it would be wrong to think that Jesus, what Jesus says here would, for example, sanction physical abuse. If you're assaulted, you should go to the police. The government has the legal authority to punish the evildoer. But even then, Jesus would say, your attitude should not be that of revenge. The relatives of the people killed in the Charleston church shooting could forgive the killer, but that didn't mean that he shouldn't go to jail. You see, the law prescribes an eye for an eye and a legal setting that is appropriate, but Jesus is pointing to a quality of life that doesn't need that prescription. Jesus is pointing to a radical faith that doesn't need to get even, even when someone does me wrong. So I want you to look at the four examples that Jesus gives us here. First of all, in verse 39 of chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, uh, that first appears to refer to one's response to physical violence, but notice the reference to the right cheek. To be slapped on the right cheek by someone who is right-handed is a result of a blow with the back of the hand, which even today in the Middle East expresses extreme contempt on the level of being spat upon. The situation here is one of personal insult more than physical injury. Here Jesus is saying that we're to display a faith that doesn't need to guard our own personal honor. 
He wants us to reach a state where our self-esteem is unaffected by my treatment by other people, but grounded completely on our relationship with God, our Father. So he's saying here, what difference does it make if someone insults you and slaps you on the right cheek? What's the big deal? I can take an insult, we should say. It's God's honor, not mine, that's important to me. I know who I am in God's sight. Why should I care what this person thinks of me? And didn't Jesus display that same kind of faith when he endured the pain of the cross, when he was dressed in a purple robe with a crown of thorns by the Roman soldiers who mocked him and spat upon him and struck him on the head again and again? None of this changed who he was, and he knew it. Yes, as Peter says, when they hurled insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. You see, it was his honor in the eyes of God that mattered to him, and so it should be for us. Now, I think about this. It, it comes up all the time. I mean, I watch football on television. How many unsportsmanlike conduct penalties occur in football just because some player has to defend his own honor against another player who shoved him? It's silly. It really is. And maddening to the coaches, you can be sure. Now, we are rightly appalled when we think that people used to engage in duels to the death over some slanderous comment. That, that was true in American history until the 19th century. But how many knife fights and shootings occur in our schools and neighborhoods just because kids are defending their honor against some insult? Now, we don't engage in duels. We just seethe in anger for years against someone because we feel that we've been wounded by them in some way. And insults come in all sorts of fashions, don't they? A sarcastic remark, a social slight, a racial or ethnic slur, an ungrateful response, a cutting comment of criticism. How do you respond to these? Do you sulk and pout? Do you secretly plot your revenge? Or do you turn the other cheek and forgive? Because your personal honor is secure in the eyes of God. Don't guard your own honor. Let God do it for you. Instead, be concerned about guarding the honor of others. Proverbs 19.11 says it well. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. That is, to turn the other cheek. Now, a second example Jesus gives here has a slightly different focus. Verse 40, if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat as well. Now, a shirt or tunic would be roughly equivalent to our suit of clothes, but the coat, which goes over your clothes, that's significant in that it was often used as one's covering when sleeping at night as a protection against the cold. And because of that, the Jewish law prohibited the taking of someone's coat as collateral for a loan, or at least if you did, you had to return it in the evening. In other words, you had a legal right to your own coat. But Jesus is saying here, display a strength of character in which you don't stand on your own rights. Give your adversary in court your coat also, if that's what he wants. Why are you always so concerned about your rights anyway? Isn't that very concerned what drives us apart? What marriage can survive when both partners are standing on their rights? 
What friendship can grow when both friends insist upon their rights? What community can thrive when everyone is asserting their rights? And evidently, the Corinthian Christians were standing on their rights with one another and were taking each other to court as a result. And Paul was appalled. 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he says, The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Sometimes the right thing to do is to suffer a wrong. And the just thing in Jesus' eyes and in Paul's is to suffer injustice. Don't assert your own rights. Instead, stand up for the rights of others. Now, in a third example, Jesus touches a raw nerve in the life of the Jews of Palestine. Israel was under Roman rule, and Rome demanded that its soldiers had the right to commandeer civilian labor if needed to carry their baggage and equipment. Now, it's interesting that in Israel today, members of the Israeli military sometimes hitchhike as a mode of transportation. In fact, Susan and I uh, did that once when we were driving in Israel. We had two Israeli soldiers sit in the back of our rental car with their assault rifles in hand. We didn't just take them one mile. We took them wherever they wanted to go. <laughs> now, in Jesus' day, this practice was resented greatly as the Romans were a brutal occupying power uh, the way that many Palestinians view the Israelis today. But what did Jesus say? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here he's saying, instead of resisting the demands of authority upon you, you should willingly volunteer to do more than is required, even when you think that activity is wrong in what they demand. Now, our egos chafe at the thought of submitting to authority, any authority. But Peter echoes Jesus' thoughts here. He says, submit yourself to the Lord's sake for every authority instituted among men, whether to kings or to governors. And in particular, Peter addresses those under the harshest form of authority of all slaves, he says. Submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. And didn't Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, didn't Jesus submit himself to earthly authorities, to the Jewish Sanhedrin, to the Roman governor, and he suffered the ultimate injustice when he was condemned to die like a common criminal. You see, it is our concern for the supremacy of our self that rebels against the demands of authority upon us. And it is our self, Jesus says, that must give way. We must submit to God's authorities as that authority is mediated in human forms. So he says, examine your own attitude to the authorities you face, the authority of employers, teachers, parents, leaders in the church, the authority of government. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him too, Jesus says. And there's a fourth example given here. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now certainly this one can't be taken literally, for as one commentator put it, such an application would quickly become self-defeating. Uh, there would be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another class of prosperous idlers and thieves owning everything. Uh, Jesus is simply insisting that our free and unselfish attitude toward our rights must extend even to our right to property. 
Now, how un-American is that? Lighten your grip, he says. It's only money. It's not yours anyway. Be willing to give it up. As Elsa would say, let it go. Let it go. Do not resist an evil person. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not take revenge. You see, this is a quality of that sincere love that Paul has been expounding. It's the principle of non-retaliation. And this principle of non-retaliation that, that comes directly from Jesus, it is deeply embedded in Christian teaching. Paul also speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 12. He says, we work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. Again in 1 Thessalonians 5, make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Peter does the same thing. 1 Peter 3, 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. This is fundamental Christian teaching. But you know, I don't think there is anything that so cuts against the grain of our own natural ways of thinking than this. There's nothing so foreign to the ways of the world, nothing so difficult for us to put into practice than resisting this urge to get a payback when someone has wronged us in some way. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea, writes C.S. Lewis, until they have something to forgive. First of all, when you think about it, what Jesus and Paul are calling us to do here, it just isn't fair. It's not fair. I mean, think about it. When someone does me wrong, I have a right to get them back, don't I? They have it coming. Where is the justice in letting them get away with some outrageous offense? We ought to be offended by injustice. Injustice rightly makes us angry. And this is the root of the human desire for revenge, which is retribution turned bad. Perhaps you've seen the bumper sticker. I don't get mad. I just get even. Revenge, it's not simply the desire to hurt someone. In the words of Thomas Hobbes, it is the desire by doing hurt to another to make them condemn some act of their own. We want the evil we perceive in a bad person to be to them what it is to everyone else. Now, this is proved, as C.S. Lewis observes, by the fact that the avenger wants the guilty party not merely to suffer, but to suffer at his hands and to know it and to know why. We want to even the score. We want to let them know what it feels like. We want to teach them a lesson, a lesson in justice. And as a result, non-retaliation it seems unjust to us. It's not fair. And then there's the weakness of it. George Bernard Shaw called forgiveness a beggar's refuge. The philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche called it a slave morality. You see, vengeance is a form of power. And in the relation between nations, not to retaliate at some offense can be perceived as simply an invitation to be attacked. And this lust for revenge, it can energize, it can motivate. It was said that the American prisoners who survived the World War II Battle of Bataan and were forced on that terrible death march, prodded by the bayonets of their captors, forced to eat rotten food with no hope of escape. These prisoners say that it was their hate toward their enemy that gave them power to survive. But forgiveness, I mean, that's for wimps. 
What do you think? Is it unfair? Is it weak? Well, I would say what Jesus advocates is unfair. It is unfair, and in the eyes of the world, this sort of non-retaliation is a form of weakness. And weak is exactly how Jesus appeared. When Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd and said, here is the man, and he appeared before them beaten and mocked and humiliated, and he just stood there and took it all, didn't defend himself, didn't retaliate. He appeared weak and harmless. Not at all the powerful Messiah that the people hoped he would be. No wonder they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You see the cross, it is folly to the world. It's a sign of weakness in the face of power. But of course we know the opposite to be true. The cross is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. And aren't we to be followers of a crucified Messiah? You see, to follow Christ in this path of non-retaliation, it's not weakness, not at all. Not when our model of strength is the Son of God. He never displayed His strength of will more fully than He hung upon that cross to retaliate. I mean, that's easy. That's our natural response. That's very human. To forgive, that's hard. It takes courage and strength. That's divine. That's divine. Not paying back evil for evil takes a moral fortitude that few can muster. May the Lord give us His strength to do it. Now, as for fairness, I mean, the cross is the greatest miscarriage of justice the world has ever seen. Jesus didn't deserve to be crucified, not at all. But He took all the abuse that this world had to offer and response, and in response, he, he offered more than just the other cheek. He gave His very life. Isn't that unjust? But there's one thing that Paul wants us to see here that makes all the difference. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Paul says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, citing Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. There will be justice. You could be sure of it. It's just not our job to see that we get it. We can leave that job to God. You see, we're not to be vigilantes, taking justice into our own hands. We shouldn't expect fairness in this life. It is God who will bring about fairness. That's His job. And it's the job of those to whom He has delegated judicial authority. And He will bring about justice in His due time. And there is no question, it will come. I will repay, says the Lord. We know that in the end, God will have the last world where no one ever gets away with anything, not ultimately. The scales of justice will be perfectly balanced. Every sin will be paid for, either by the sinner or by the Savior. You see, that's the conviction that enables us to forgive and leave the issue of justice with God. 
And we see this working out in Paul's own life. He writes to Timothy, interestingly, 2 Timothy 4. He says, Alexander the metalworker did a great deal of harm to me. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. Now, Paul's not naive. He warns Timothy about Alexander in the next verse. He said, you too should be on, on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. But Paul is content to leave Alexander's judgment to God. And isn't that what Jesus did? 1 Peter 2, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threat. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself. Jesus entrusted his enemies. Jesus entrusted this entire unjust situation into God's hands, knowing in faith that his heavenly Father always judges justly. Can we do that? Can we bear unjust treatment patiently, believing that God is in control, that He will judge rightly, that our God is faithful, our God is just, no one will ever get away with anything? Do you believe that? If you do, then do as Peter says to do later in his letter. He says, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. When you're tempted to get even, just remember this. Jesus, our Savior, did not retaliate, and God, our Father, is a righteous judge. But as we close here, I, 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 wanna, I want you to see that not returning evil for evil is not only an act of faith that's to be commended by God, it is also good for the world. You see, when we try to resist the person who comes against us by returning evil for evil, we only increase the amount of evil in the world. We end up participating in this destructive law of escalating retribution. Think of it this way. It's like a, a nuclear power plant. In a nuclear power plant, some atoms, I don't know how they do this, but they're split. And this reaction occurs. And these atomic particles start bouncing around, splitting other atoms everywhere around them. And if that reaction is left unchecked, you get this immensely destructive nuclear explosion. But to prevent that, control rods are lowered into this nuclear mess. And these rods absorb those particles so that the power that is generated there may be controlled and harnessed for good. You see, God has called us to be like those control rods, absorbing evil in the world so it doesn't get out of control. And isn't that what the cross of Christ is about? Jesus absorbed all the evil that the world could throw at him so that through that act, we might have peace with God. You see, we're called to bear the cost of forgiveness ourselves. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For this is what God's love requires. For this is what God's love did. Well, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation for the gospel. 
this gospel that is about your justice and your mercy coming together as you send your own Son to bear the cost of our forgiveness. Your wrath is displayed even as your mercy is, is manifest in the cross of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that that gospel may so enter our hearts that we may enter into that reality, that we may follow in the footsteps of our crucified Messiah and know who we are in your sight, that we don't have to defend our honor, we don't have to look after our own rights, we can, we can be generous and gracious knowing that you are our God and ultimately judgment will take place in your good time. And so, Lord, give us freedom. Freedom not to respond in kind to the evil we may experience. Lord, give us gracious, merciful, patient hearts that reflect the heart of, of your Son, Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we be instruments of peace, peacemakers, and so be called sons of God. Well, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.